Longacres Rhetoric 321 class here about to interview Professor Davida Charney. Professor Charney is a professor in the Department of Rhetoric Writing at the University of Texas. She's been at UT for nearly 20 years. She got her BA from Brandeis University, her master's from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and her PhD from Carnegie Mellon University. In addition to rhetorical theory, she's an experienced teacher of business and technical communications as well as public policy arguments. She's a member and or chair for numerous faculty committees, association boards, and legal advocacy groups. And she has a wide range of uh, academic interests, including rhetorical theory and analysis, Jewish studies and the Hebrew Bible, the rhetoric of science and professional and technical communications, skill learning processes and lifelong learning, and writing in the disciplines. Hello, Professor Tarney. How are you? Hi. Glad to be here. Yeah, me too. So our first question, I understand, um, like Adam said, you have a background in technical communication and your earlier research focused on professional writing, the rhetoric of science, and educational visualization. So our question is, what caused you to change your focus of study? I moved from Penn State University to UT Austin um, actually 22 years ago. When I was on the faculty at Penn State, my major job was teaching technical and business communication. And we taught actually engineering students and business students. Here at UT, our department isn't responsible for that. So the engineering college hires its own writing instructors and the business school hires its own. So I had to start learning to, well, I, I was always interested in teaching all kinds of writing, so I just branched out in other directions. You've already published one book on the Psalms, Persuading God. Are you interested or planning writing another? Yes, so my current project is looking at what happened when the whole system surrounding the Psalms in Jerusalem was destroyed. So the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 in the Common Era and there was this big dispersion of the Jewish population all over. And without the temple and the sacrificial system, then the Psalms didn't work in some sense. So they had to come up with a whole different approach. So right at that time, which was also right around the time of the origins of Christianity and so on, all these different religious groups were developing brand new systems of prayer and interaction with God. So I'm looking at what happened to the Psalms as these other prayer systems were being developed. That's really interesting, but I'm curious, what led you to Psalms? Oh, that's a good question. I've always been interested in biblical studies, and I've always sat in on classes and tried to go to lectures, and I, I actually dated somebody who was doing a dissertation on Hebrew Bible, and so in sort of helping him finish his dissertation, I was learning a lot. And so when I got here and there was kind of a, a chance for me to think of a whole new project, I thought about the Psalms. And the ones in particular that I look at, it makes sense to look at them from a rhetorical point of view because they're, uh, the speakers are trying to persuade God. 
so it just seemed like everything fit. All right, yeah. Well, uh, last week in class, we read one of your articles about the rhetoric and the Psalms, and we had a class-wide discussion about it. And something that came up a lot in class was the idea that if God is omniscient, then there's no point in trying to appeal to him. That's what some people had to say. I was kind of confused why there was this kind of need to persuade with a being that is like assumed to be omniscient. And there are some psalms that were quoted that say like, God knows my thoughts and like where I'm going. And so I was confused what was the necessity of persuading a God that already knows what you think and what you did. Yet in the article you quoted David Frank and he says, that God of the Hebrew Bible is, by nature, argumentative. And so we were just wondering if we can get some insights from you on why would an omniscient God be open to argument? So that's a great question. First of all, within the view of God of the Hebrew Bible, that we need to try to get into that viewpoint instead of our own viewpoint of what it means for God to be omniscient. And so all we have as evidence is other texts that were written at that time period. And there are a lot of texts that certainly come right out and say or that are implying that God is not a mind reader. The God of the Hebrew Bible is not a mind reader. And there's very little in the Hebrew Bible about God somehow policing motives or things like that. It was so much of an oral culture that people had to say things out loud, okay? There are a few exceptions to this, but that's by and large what it was. So the other piece of it that's really important is that God has, in the Hebrew Bible, has plans for helping people learn specific kinds of skills and traits, particularly the people that God wants to become prophets or to become leaders. And so there are ways in which God deliberately withholds information or doesn't intervene in order for people to try things out and learn things. And so either one of those can be part of the story. The third part of the story is that it's very clear that God, even though there is some notion of omniscience, God can withdraw, can not pay attention, can choose not to pay attention, can become more distant as one of the forms of kind of punishment or discipline. And at all times, it, there's a clear view that you need to remind God, you need to keep it communicating with God, that a lot of the system is designed to keep the lines of communication and to keep saying things and having those communications be out loud in public. And so I think that in the Psalms, you see a lot of evidence of people making moves that are saying, hey, God, remember us, you know, I'm, I'm the child of your chosen ones and, you know, you kind of owe it to me. Right. So assuming that, like you say, God is open to argument, what do you think this says about the relationship between and the Jewish faith with discourse? And is it divergent from other religions, let's say Catholicism, or is it similar to them? 
Yeah, I think that there's some divergence there. I think what it says is that the relationship between the Jewish people and and God is it's a two-way street and it's not necessarily going to be a smooth path. That there are pathways, but there are going to also be crises and junctures of pain and in difficulty. And so one of the things that God is kind of training people to do in our religion is to get through the times when there's trouble. So there's actually uh, one of the things that gets overlooked a lot is that within the Hebrew Bible, it's very clear that God creates evil as well as good. And so things that happen that aren't necessarily what people are liking is still traceable to God. And I think that that's different from some other traditions and other religions. So the relationship between Christian people and Jesus is a very different relationship than the one between both Jews, modern Jews, and God today, and which is also different from the relationship between people in the Hebrew Bible and God. You said there was an importance of like saying things out loud. And in class, we had a discussion about whether the speakers in the Psalms were directing their messages to God or whether it was a matter of community acceptance. So when I, when I think of like, why are they making these arguments to God? I think of it like, it's actually really kind of a more selfish reason, at least that's like from my reading. Um, so I kind of saw it as, you know, the, the people that go to church and the people that, um, you know, listen to preachers and all that, they kind of have that community. And, um, you know, if they ever get into trouble, they do something that's seen as like unholy, they'll be sort of isolated and ostracized. So the purpose of making that argument is to be re-invited or re-included back into that community. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It was public not only being said out loud, it, it's not in any kind of prayer service, it's in a very public forum. And there's a lot of clues that the speakers are conscious that there's a lot of spectators and that what they're doing is also arguing for their own status within the community. So if somebody got into trouble in that community, if they got sick or if they had suffered some kind of loss or something like that, people would automatically assume that they had sinned in some way. If they knew that they were not sinful, they would go and do one of these sacrifices and say, hey, God, I know we have a great relationship. Why am I in trouble right now? I'm innocent, and you know that. So that's also it's staking a claim within the community, and then it's showing that they're being attentive to what God wants and rehearsing all of the same values that the whole community wants, and basically putting the opponents on notice to say, you know, don't give up on me yet. Don't count me out because God is going to come through. Sometimes. It turns out that way, and sometimes it doesn't. If it doesn't turn out that way, then the guy can go back and say, I call you every day, I cry, I weep, and I still no answer, when, 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 and that's where some of this comes from. You see some of that. You further state in the article that Psalms are designed to keep the Israelite community in divine discourse, even when hoped-for response is not forthcoming. Are you implying that there are some community-based purpose in the Psalms, and which audience is most affected by the psalm, God or the public, the community? Great question, too. So, yes, I do think that there's a community service. I might go a little off topic here. That the entire community is 
hearing all of this discourse being repeated, partly because, you know, the psalms that are not the ones that I look at, but the ones that are chanted and sung in processions and in other kinds of ceremonial occasions, they're all also saying out loud all of these values of what are you supposed to be like? How are you supposed to behave? What does God expect from us? And so the entire popular culture, all of the discourse and all of the pageantry and all of the ceremony is all geared towards helping the entire community be more in line with those values. As compared to popular culture today, which kind of trains us to distrust everybody and hope for superheroes who somehow, you know, get spidey tinglings and things or, you know, or, or zombies or whatever. And so instead of working hard and, and reinforcing all of our values of hard work and teamwork and cooperation and trust, our popular culture is undermining a lot of those values. There are good and bad things, because if the popular culture is one of obedience to arbitrary power, then you'd want to have people be more distrustful and willing to act up. But those values that were being rehearsed, they are good ones. All right, well, um, on to uh, another topic. Your article emphasized persuasion on the part of the speakers and some of the rhetorical strategies that they use to try to appeal to God. And our class discussion revolved around the use of ethos mm -hmm. as a rhetorical strategy. God has the ultimate ethos, the ultimate authority, at least for these people. And so saying I kind of submit to this ultimate authority, this ultimate ethos is an ethical appeal. It's just different than what we're used to. And we were just wondering, do you think ethos is the most effective and relevant appeal presented in the Psalms? Or do you see other forms of appeal? And if so, are they more impactful or, or not? Yeah, ethos is huge. Ethos is huge because these are individual speakers. And so they need either to remind God of their previous relationship or they need to convince God of why they are worthy to be responded to. So that's huge. That's a, that's a major one. The other one is the kind of in-your-face challenge to God and God's self-image and reputation. So the challenge to God of saying, hey, you know, if you don't rescue me, then your reputation as a just God who protects the innocent is going to go down the drain. And so I think that's the major one. And that's the one that's the most interesting because we don't normally think about people challenging God in that way. It's, it's very different from what happens, I think, in Christianity. And I think that we don't know God's response in a lot of ways. We know from the book of Job where you, that's a very interesting book. It's very clear that God has no rational reason for bringing all of these troubles on Job. And Job is just sitting there saying, I'm innocent. You know, what's going on here? And no, I'm not going to grovel or whatever. And at the end, basically, God says to the Job's friends who are saying, you know, just either curse God and die or, you know, submit yourself and say, this is deserved. I deserve whatever I get. And God comes out and says, nope, Job is right. But then he says to Job, God says to Job, who are you to question me? I created the stars and the moon and everything. And 
okay, yes, you you might be innocent, and yes, I'm supporting you and challenging, but I don't answer to you. So there's all these very, you know, interesting things that are there, and we kind of have to cope with them. And going off this topic of rhetorical strategies, in the article you point to the differences in the way that Jewish psalmists and, say, Akkadian and Sumerian petitioners to God cast themselves. And so the psalmists usually declare innocence, but many Near East religions often confess sin. So why do you think the psalmist almost empirically use the innocent sufferer archetype? The basic idea there is that when you're in a monotheistic religion and there's only one God, then you have to persuade that God. In the other ancient Near Eastern cultures where there were many gods, what they used to do is if their god wasn't answering, then they would go to that god's spouse or parent or somebody else and sort of say, could you just go and talk to this god of mine and, you know, I'm really, I'm really in trouble here and, you know, it, I would really appreciate it and they would try and propitiate these other gods to go and <laughs> intervene with, with these other ones. So you had other options. So they didn't have to come right up against the fact that there wasn't anybody else. Next question, I'm going to play you another little bit of audio because it's this interesting analogy um, from class between God and a politician, like a contemporary application. So let's see if you can. I think that if the relationship with between humans and God is covenantal, the relationship between humans and the humans that are meant to represent them in a government is also covenantal, um, and that comes with like two-way commitments. So what are your thoughts on that covenantal relationship? Yeah, I, th I think that that's it's a good analogy. Um, there's also a system of patrons and so on that where there is a responsibility of the more powerful person to the less powerful people that becomes institutionalized in Rome, for instance, in the Roman Republic. In Greece, there was a certain amount of, in Athens, you know, where the whole rhetorical system was um, articulated, written down. There was also that kind of sense of two-way obligation. So there is a, a tradition that undergirds that. And the idea of responsibilities of a monarch or a powerful person to the lesser beings is a strong one. So yes, I think that's a good analogy. The difference is that I think with a covenant, the people have more power in a covenant in the sense that God's whole plan evaporates if all of the followers decide to go and worship somebody else. In a political system, you would have to have some kind of revolution or you have these mechanisms whereby you can vote somebody out and so on and so forth. But really a relationship, the covenantal relationship that was being set up in the Hebrew Bible, it, it really is a two-way street. So I think that that's why there is so much attention to these covenants and to these things. If you do this, then this will happen. If you do that, something else will happen. And all of this mechanism that's built up to trying to balance, balance the two sides. So talking about another analogy that was uh, brought up in class for this relationship between God and the Israelites, one of the students drew a parallel to uh, the courtroom, you know, so God being the judge and the Israelites being the accused. 
And so some of the parallels would be establishing rights for the innocents to redress or denouncing others and character testimony. But I totally saw the analogy to uh, a law and like talking to a judge and having the jury. And I think from my perspective, it's important to remember that uh, religion is still definitely a manifestation of how humans like organize themselves and inter interrelate between each other. And so what are your thoughts on that analogy and do you see any parallels or, and um, is this a productive way of drawing real-world applications to the Hebrew Psalms? Um, yes and no. The Hebrew Bible sets out some very elaborate instructions for how to do criminal and civil kinds of cases. We don't have a huge number of details of that, but there are there's a lot of stuff in there about witnesses and various ways to make sure that the courts are just and there's that's one of the key values is that people who are put in that position have to be just and and there's you're not supposed to make distinctions between the rich and the poor and so on and so forth so certainly if there are people who are innocent and feeling like they they have to go to God for redress. So the question is, why isn't it done in the courtroom? So there's two kinds of answers. One answer is that these are not really criminal things. The things that people are complaining about are sort of outside the criminal system. So for example, if they are complaining about neighbors who are being mean to them or plotting against them or something like that, there may not actually be a crime being committed. But another more, even more interesting one is what if the person who's the opponent is somebody who's more powerful, is even a judge or somebody who's a governor or has some kind of power? It could be that they don't trust the court system to take care of it or they can't prove that there was a crime, but they still want to call them out in public. And so there are certain specific psalms that I put down to that, that are in that situation. And they're very interesting for that reason. Religion is a heavy topic because students have different backgrounds, experiences, and affiliations. You teach an upper division history of rhetoric class, rhetoric 330D, persuasion in the Bible. And so one of our questions is, do you think personal beliefs influence how receptive an audience is to being taught Psalms from a rhetorical perspective? Yes. Only taught that course once, and I'm teaching it again in the spring. And it, it surprised me, actually, that when I asked on the first day of class what people knew about religion or about the Bible, there were a lot of people who had no background whatsoever. And so in some ways that was a bigger and more, it was kind of scary to be representing, you know, religion to people who really didn't have much of a background. There are also, but also, I mean, it's impossible for anybody to grow up in you know, the United States today without sort of absorbing a lot of what is called the Judeo-Christian tradition, which I, it's a term I don't like because it's really a Christian tradition. It, and so there was a lot of work I had to do to sort of say, okay, you, you need to kind of detach and take a look, try and take a look at this from the point of view of people in the Hebrew Bible who didn't know anything about Christ. Christ was not in the picture whatsoever. This is what they had. So there was some work on that. 
And then there were some people who had, you know, really strong religious beliefs. Uh, some of them were more open to interpretations of texts that were very different from their own, and some were less open to it. So that's a challenge. And what would you say students walk away with once your class is over? So um, class carries a global cultures flag, and I think that the goal of classes with that flag is to get people to think about the assumptions that they take for granted about religion, about the American view of the world, the importance of history, how to listen to other people who are coming from different perspectives, and then try to bring some of those skills to their interactions in the, in the world. So I think that that happens. We ended up looking a lot at different kinds of interactions between God and individuals, um, people who are praying to God, people who are just in interactive situations with God, like in the, you know, in Genesis, the first book, there's a lot of personal interaction, like Adam and Eve and Noah. And then interactions between God and sort of chosen spokespeople, like the prophets. And that's a very interesting relationship. And so I do think that because of the political dimension and even the, the criminal justice or the justice system um, dimension, people could get an idea of what are some alternative ways of acting in those with people who are more powerful and so on, and what are some other ways we can imagine those kinds of interactions. I hope so, anyway. And our final question is, what's your favorite psalm and why? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so my favorite psalm, I think it's 93. It's, it's in my book. It's a psalm in which it's a very unusual psalm because the speaker is basically talking about almost having a loss of faith because of seeing all of these bad people who are very rich and very prosperous, they're prosperous, healthy, and arrogant. And even though they are not upholding all of the values that you know are the 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 society is supposed to be upholding, they're prospering. And the speaker is saying, "Why am I staying with my hands clean? Why am I bothering to stay so innocent? You know, they may be prospering for the moment, but." there's a long game plan here and they're they're doomed to die they're doomed to fail whether in my lifetime or not so i like it because i like seeing people thinking through things critically and that's what this person is doing and because it's a psalm that's being modeled for everybody else and saying loss of faith is not itself putting you in a bad state it's actually an opportunity to think about assumptions and so on and learn how to value deferred gratification, you know? <laughs> so deferred gratification is a big thing for, for Jews, you know, like keep waiting, keep waiting, and keep the faith and so on and keep following. So that's, that's one of my favorites for that reason. Awesome, yeah. Well, uh, that's all we have for you. Thanks for joining us, Professor Charney. Uh, we really liked your article. 
I'm pretty sure Kendall's taking your class next semester. Great. Okay. I want more people to take the class. That's super. Yeah, it was a, it was a fun class, too. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Right, so that's it. Thanks for listening to our podcast featuring the voices of Kendall Haas, Lorraine Garza, Adam Trevino, and Professor Davida Charney. Edited by Sydney Jones, Kendall Haas, Lorraine Garza, and Adam Trevino. Special thanks to William Burdett and the Digital Writing and Research Lab, Professor Davida Charney, and Professor Longacker. Thank you.